Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe, and then you'll never miss a video. In cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are, but thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out. It's a final word story time for the 69th time. Nice. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon with you for another weekend as we gallop through the history of the game that we love, the great game of cricket. Uh, hello, Jeff. Uh, can you believe that we've now done 69 of these? It was a, Initially, the idea of story time or the weekend show was to give a home for our Calling the Shots interviews at the very start mm-hmm. of, the, of the pandemic lockdown. And now, yeah, I guess the better part of a year and a half on, it's perhaps taking as much well, if not more time than anything we do in the final word is devoted to telling these stories, which is quite a nice thing. Can you believe we've done 69? A question that often comes up, you know, when when you realise that momentous occasion has has come around for the first time. This is our first time to 69 Storytime episodes. We did discuss how we could mark that occasion best. Uh, there were there were thoughts of doing some numerical deep dives into Le Soissant Neuf, uh, as they call it en français. There were there were thoughts of like maybe maybe we should do the episode like one of us starts it backwards. You Upside know, down. We come at we come at it from opposite ends, as it were, um, and, and meet in the middle. Where you know I could start with the confirmations and then the revisits and then get into the new numbers. Um, but but in the end, a lack of time. Uh, has meant that we haven't done any of these puerile things. We will, we will have a pretty belt and braces um, down the middle sort of show <laughs> with some new numbers, a couple of revisits because there's a World Cup on and we haven't had time to do anything lavish. But it's nice to know that we're here with with all of you having a a general group 
69 with all of our listeners. Yes, no, Philip and Elizabeth Jennings for you Americans fans out there. Right, before we get into the new numbers and, and Nerd Pledge, because we're not doing weekly shows owing to our World Cup commitments at the moment, we haven't had an opportunity to talk about the fact that three Australian test cricketers passed away in the space of 48 hours uh, over the course of last weekend. Ashley Mallet, Ella Davidson and Peter Philpot. In the case of Davidson, one of the true all-time greats. Ashley Mallett, one of Australia's most prolific off-spinners, and Peter Philpot, who left a big legacy, not only as a leg-breaker, but as a coach and a team manager as well. He was a, a man who committed his life to the game. Very unusual to have, obviously, players who are elderly pass away, but to have three in quick succession meant that there was a lot of, uh, a lot of reflection, a lot of sombre reflection over the course of last weekend. Uh, three men who represented Australia with distinction. A lot of looking back and, yeah, it, 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 it hits you when, I mean, having it happen like that. I, I just finished writing a piece about Davo and Ashley Mallett, uh, which which went up on The Guardian and then the next day the news about Peter Philpott came through. So, uh, in a way, I, I, I wish he didn't have to be included, but I wish he, I had been able to include him yeah. um, because I suppose it's a... The stories of the sport are around the ways that different players are joined together and in this way, although they were of different generations, these players are joined together now in, in that final exit. So uh, well played all and we we wish you a, a gentle farewell. In the case of Philpot, when I about, oh, I don't know, eight or nine years ago when I realised my shoulder couldn't do what it used to do, I wanted to become a leg spinner and I read The Art of Wrist Spin Bowling, which uh, Peter Philpot wrote. Tim Watts, who's a member of parliament uh, in the federal parliament, recommended it to me. He read it a number of times as a kid and, yeah, it was quite a thoughtful book about the most challenging craft in the game. It's such a tactile thing, isn't it, wrist spin bowling? You've got to have the right personality to do it. You need to be able to roll with the punches. There are only a handful of freakish leg breakers or wrist spin bowlers who can land it on a dime over after over, hour after hour, and so it goes. Perhaps in the modern game, we think of someone like Rashid Khan, go back a generation, Shane Warne. But the vast majority of wrist spinners did drop short, uh, you know, once and over, did give a four ball once and over. Certainly beneath the elite level, if you're thinking about club cricket, your wrist spinner was going to go for plenty, but he would also be very effective, and, and that's gone into as well. It's a part of the game that requires perhaps more resilience than any other, I reckon. Uh, I, I have a recollection of um, John Harms once saying, off spinners are like sociologists that they're very much in the tram tracks they keep things belt and braces as you said before whereas wrist spinners are like historians they like to take risks and really throw it out there and test themselves and um, and I think that's the spirit in which Peter Philpott bowled and also the way that he thought and wrote about the game and speaking of writing about the game I mean with Ashley Mallett he was perhaps as much of a presence off the field in what he did um, as a journalist and a writer as he was when he was an outstanding off spinner for Australia through a period of time that mostly gets remembered for fast bowling, Jeff, but uh, there he was, very consistent, a brilliant start to his career, his first 20 test matches or so, he was ever so prolific, alongside often Lilly and Thompson and Max Walker, but there he was routinely taking wickets at about 20 or thereabouts and, and did a fine job over a test career which extended to 12 years. And he was almost the GOAT before Nathan Lyon was the GOAT, he finished his career only nine wickets behind Hugh Trumbull, I think, uh, for Australian off-spinners, so uh, he very nearly had that mark as the most prolific finger spinner for Australia before N.M. Lyon came along and made it his own 
although the nicknames would probably have been different in the 1970s. Very straightforward. They're like, oh, this guy's quiet. We'll call him Rowdy. <laughs> hey? yeah, good one. Yeah, I, I always liked that. I mean, I, I always enjoyed when playing with a redhead, they'd be known as Bluey uh, and all mm-hmm. the rest of it. Um, very Australian there. It's better than, like, if, if he were around today, he'd be called Mellow and that would be far less interesting. That's true. He would be. He, he, he'd be, uh, yeah, that, that's it. It'd almost certainly be Mellow, wouldn't it? So uh, we've regressed on, on that front. Or maybe Hammer. Hammer. Because hey, it's Mallet, call him Pat. Ah, get it? Yep. yep. That, that, that's as good as it's going to get, though, isn't it? Yeah. And Alan Davis and mm-hmm. Davo, who, yeah, you've been you've been writing about Jeff in tribute, but his numbers just extraordinary, really, uh, as a as a fast bowler. How effective he was in that era, immediately after, I suppose, Lindwall and Miller, and there was Davison leading the attack as a southpaw. Also, the runs he made, he, he was the first player to make a hundred runs and, and take ten wickets in a Test match, wasn't he? At Brisbane, the tie Test of nineteen sixty, and was one of many times when he was the match winner for Australia across his distinguished career. Yeah, absolutely that. And in in that key um, Ashes victory as well in England, um, the, the test win that put them 2-1 up. Um, but yeah, when you look at his work across the Tide test, uh, the contribution to that 11 wickets and 124 runs, I think, mm. in the test match, um, it, it's, you know, it's the most famous test Australia's played for a reason. The other really big news in in cricket this week uh, comes out of Yorkshire. Their uh, response to the report they released came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, The report is now out there for public consumption and the way it was responded to, um, beggar's belief really, it's prompted a a massive response from members of the club, from sponsors of the club, from the ECB who have launched their own investigation now separate to that, from Azeem Rafiq himself, from Gary Balance who put a statement out on the Yorkshire website last night following him effectively being named as the player who'd vilified Azeem Rafiq in the most egregious way that George DeBell wrote about for Crick Info during the week. Jeff, it'd be disingenuous for us to try and capture this in the space of a few minutes. So we've said that a couple of times and I don't want people to think that we're we're avoiding the topic. We're not at all. We just want to do it justice when it's not so bloody busy. And we thought the right way to do that might be to do a show dedicated to the Azeem Rafiq scandal after the World Cup has finished in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, there's also going to be more information. I mean, this is... This has been a story that's been so slowly unfolding because it's been so deliberately slowed down by Yorkshire. You know, this is this has been their entire approach the whole time and it, it is quite astonishing how that cricket club has managed to disgrace itself more and more as things have gone on. Like, there, there, is, there is no point in this whole process where they've started to twig about what they've been doing wrong and tried to improve it. They've only doubled down and doubled down and made it worse for themselves. They they need an absolute fire hose put through the place to clean out the dreck that is lining the walls and dripping down the stairwells. Um, they're a disgrace right now and if you're a proud member of the Yorkshire Cricket Club, you should want to make it better, you know, rather than trying to circle the wagons and defend your club, you should be wanting to fix what is rotten in your club, scrape out the muck um, and and start again with something much better. Yeah, and there's a motion for an extraordinary general meeting. They're collecting signatures for that at the moment, a number of members of the club. I've quote tweeted uh, some of those the other day. If you are a Yorkshire member listening here and want to take direct action and want to have your say, there is a vehicle for doing that through an extraordinary general meeting. So keep an eye out for that in, in the weeks to come. And you're right, Jeff, just to close out before we move on, this is one of these situations in, in public life 
really, when you can do one of two things. You can acknowledge that you were fucked up and you take full responsibility. You don't make excuses. You accept where there have been considerable wrongs in the past and you use that as a means of getting better. And you, in the process, do a lot of good for a lot of people by showing complete contrition. There's an alternative approach, which is, as you say, doubling down, bunkering down, hoping the story will go away. Remembering that this story broke, I don't know, 14 months ago. But the whole way through, they've tried to write it out, write it out, write it out. And you can write out a little process story. You can write out maybe one or two things, uh, you know, when they don't have this kind of cut through. But the fact that they thought they could ride this out speaks volumes about the decision makers at that club. And that starts at the top with the board. So, um, yeah, there'll be that opportunity for members to get involved if they can get the signatures required for an EGM. And, yeah, more power to them in that process. Uh, Jeff, that's the heavy stuff out of the way. Let's move to the main portion of the show where we'll, we'll add... Add some light to the dark. Uh, it's time for some... Mm-hmm. Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's a game. That's the key thing to know about Nerd Pledge. That means it's fun. It's a game that we play with people on the Patreon page. Here's how it works. We make many podcasts. They have to get paid for somehow. People help us fund them. Bless their hearts. They send us contributions. Not normal round amounts of currency, but very specific granular decimal pointed amounts because those numbers relate to cricket in some way and we have to figure out what the relationship is. For example, a double header to start us off, that means two different patrons have sent in the same number, but possibly for different reasons. They are Pat Rogers. Hello, Pat. And Tom Fisher. Welcome, Tom. Take a seat. Make yourselves comfortable. Their number is $3.21. And that means it could mean 321, 321,000, 0.00321, 3.21, which I think is what Tim Smith blew on the breathalyzer, and uh, whatever else it may be. There are so many ways that this could go. So, Adam, you have the first swing this week at 321. You're looking at Pat's number, and he sent through a clue, which you don't have to do, but you can, and the clue is not an uneventful triple century as it led to a victory and it featured a long train trip, mid-match, and a Maltese cross. Thanks, Jeff. That's now the second time we've done the Tim Smith joke. And I think we're going to do it week Worth after reusing. week after week after week. The thing about Tim Smith is, make no mistake, he will hold on to pre-selection in queue because the rarities and oddities that, that, that comprise of the Victorian branch of the Liberal Party will insist on that being the case. And then he will return to the front bench as a shadow minister after the election next year because that's just the way those freaks work. The Victorian branch of the Liberal Party is a messy, messy place. 321, Pat Rogers, a bunch of Trump freaks as well. Um, right, uh, we've got the clue here that it's an uneventful triple century. I'm going to challenge you, Pat. I think it's a most eventful uh, triple century, and I'm going to tell you why. There's only been one no, triple no, century. He's, he's saying it's not an uneventful Oh, I'm sorry. Century. I misunderstood what you said. It's, an, it's not an uneventful... You're dead right then. Well, this this was a... Yes, okay. So, Jeff, your, your thesis in the past has been that triple tons are often quite boring things. Yes. I have two theses. Um, one, that they're generally boring, and two, that they are almost universally made by knobs. That's, right. Those right. are my theses. Well, yeah. well, this, well, it wasn't made by a knob, I can assure you. Billy Murdoch, the great Billy Murdoch, at the mm. Association Ground in 1882. Do you know what the Association Ground became um, in Sydney became in 1894? The SCG. So 12 years before it's called the SCG, it's mm-hmm. called the Association Ground. And it's a right. decade before the Sheffield Shield as well, and five years 
after the first test match. So just giving a bit of context here, first-class cricket barely existed in this era. In 1881-82, the summer in question, only 10 games were played in total and only three between the states. Alfred Shaw's MCC tourists were in Mm -hmm. Australia and they played four matches that became later known as test matches. There were three other games and there were three matches played between the states. And one of those was between New South Wales and Victoria in the February of 1882. Just again to go through what they were up to that summer, Shaw's tourists were pumped by Billy Murdoch's Australians 4-0 yeah, and later defined as tests. It was a huge tour for the MCC, Jeff. Uh, you'll be pleased to know that it did start. The first game of their tour to Australia began against the Gents of Philadelphia, naturally, uh, when they swung through the America. Gents of Philadelphia. The Gents of Philadelphia. But this match that I'm that I'm going to talk about was played in between the first and second test matches in mm-hmm. February 1882. So they played the second, third and fourth tests were very deep into the summer in February and March. New South Wales batted and batted for 398 overs. In doing so, it was the first Ew. score of over 700 in first-class cricket in Australia. And Murdoch, who, who makes his 3-2-1, and we'll come to Murdoch's 3-2-1 in a minute. Remember, he's in the middle of a test series. And Joey Palmer's opening the bowling for Australia and also opening the bowling for Victoria in this game. He punishes Palmer to the tune of 80 overs at the bowling crease for two for 161, <laughs> despite the fact that there was a test match starting three days later. So, so much I for like that, um, workload management. That at, some, at some point during episode 69, you've used the phrase punished Palmer. <laughs> <You know? laughs> some have been known to punish Palmer a little bit too much. Um, sorry, go on. I'll try. Okay, so at the end of the third day, this innings ended. Uh, so they batted for three days, 398 overs. They made mm-hmm. 700 and... 700 and something. I didn't write it down. There you 769. Let's 769. 769. There you go. Murdoch came imagine, in- imagine if you're Jesus Christ and you get crucified and you get boxed up in the cave and they roll the rock over the thing and you, and you go and chat with God for a while and you get reincarnated, you, you reanimated, you come back to life, you, you disappear from the cave, you come back out again and the same bloody innings is still going on. <laughs> like, these guys were betting when I went in. <laughs> Fuck that Murdoch fella. He was on about 15. He's still there 495 minutes later and he struck 38 boundaries. That's what he did after coming in at number three. He got given one chance on 120. Other than that, mm-hmm. it was declared a faultless innings. Huge attention as well. This is worth noting. So crowds weren't that big a deal around this time, but 17,000 people streamed into what would then be later the SCG when he was in full flow on the second day. He became the first Australian to complete a triple century, the second all-time to WG who had couple under his belt by that stage, I reckon. Sammy Jones, who's been a focus of a final word discussion in the past, also made a century uh, for New South Wales. And in the case of in the case of Murdoch, he, he basically doubled his previous high score in first-class cricket, which was the 153 he made at the Oval in 1880 against England in the very first Test match in England. So a bit of uh, history there overtaking that tally. Four years later, I should say, by the way, on that same ground, Murdoch would be the first man to make a double century in Test cricket in 1884, also at the Oval. So he did a lot of firsts, Billy. Tom Hogan, the Victorian captain, speaking of firsts, this is the first documented example of of a captain bowling leg theory 
or what would later be known as Bodyline, in an Uh effort to try and stymie Murdoch, which they they failed to do so. As often is the case after a team goes large, uh, Victoria were out for 3.15 and 3.22 following on New South Wales win by an innings and 138. Based on that, we can probably work out what what New South Wales made, but uh, I can't be bothered with that. Now, in terms of the, the other clues that Pat gave, which were really interesting to go back through and have a look at, a long train trip mid-match and a Maltese cross. Uh, I'll come back to the train journey. Uh, The dog, however, was presented to Murdoch at the SCG test match the next week. Remembering it wasn't seen as a test match, it was just Alfred Shaw's 11, but you know it was the higher profile of the game with the Australian team playing. And at one of the intervals, they gave Murdoch to recognise his triple ton, a Maltese cross and a gold watch. (laughs) Which... (laughs) Wait, wait, hang on. Do you... Are you sure that this was a dog because I, I, I have a feeling that a Maltese cross is a piece of jewellery, like, oh, right. like, a, like a metal, <laughs> like, a, like not, not a small white fluffy dog that's been bred with something else. I just assumed they um, gave him a dog out on the field. Let's not go any further. Let's let, let's let our imaginations run wild. It's either a piece okay. of jewellery. It probably makes sense that he yeah. got a piece of jewellery with a gold watch, but I want to believe they I gave him like, a puppy. I think it's like a medal. It's like a St. George's cross, which then has a crossover because a St. George's cross was awarded in its in totality after World War II to the entire island of Malta. As, so, you know, a St George's, a George's Cross, not a St George's Cross, that's the flag. A, a George's Cross is a, right. is a military award that's given as, as a bravery award. So if someone who has GC after their name, they're a George, uh, they've, they've got a George Cross. The island of Malta en masse, the entire, all of the people, the, the, the nation of Malta, because they got the shit bombed out of them by the Germans and mm. were used as a staging post for the Allies to invade Italy and all the rest of it. Malta in its entirety was awarded the George Cross after World War II. So the official name of the country is actually Malta GC. GC. <laughs> yeah. Which makes me wonder, So maybe I'm conflating those things, but I'm pretty sure a Maltese cross is, is like a medal type thing. Maybe it's, maybe it's mixed up with a Maltese falcon. Maybe it is a dog. Who knows? Well, yeah, I mean, on reflection, uh, what I didn't put in my notes, but what I read when going through the book I was looking at on this, it did talk about two England players also being given and Maltese crosses on the day. And it did cross right. my mind that, did they just take a couple of puppies back on the boat with them? No, probably yeah. not. I mean, in reality, it probably was a piece of jewellery. So that resolves that bit. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so just, uh, just uh, I should note, by the way, um, that 3-2-1 um, remained the highest score in Australia until Clem Hill's 340 in 1929 in a, in a mm-hmm. New South Wales-Victoria game. There's a brilliant biography about uh, about Billy Murdoch, which I've talked about on the show a number of times, uh, Rick Sissons and Richard Cashman wrote called Cricket Colossus, uh, which begins actually mm-hmm. with the scene of his death at a test match in 1911 at the MCG when he kind of collapses. I think it was a, a giant stroke and he kind of dies at the MCG, which is quite appropriate given the cricket he played there over the years. As for the train journey... I went back and had a look at Cricket Colossus to see if I could find any evidence of this, and, and sure enough, they, they did have this in there. They report in their book, a bizarre aspect of the match was that Murdoch 
had a business in court in Cootamundra and he was absent mm. on the fourth day of the match, making an 11-hour train journey there on the third evening and then making the return trip on the fourth evening of the match, enabling him to play on the fifth and final day. In his absence, New South Wales employed four stopgap keepers, including Alec Bannerman, Hugh Massey, Fred Spoffer and Ted Evans, who let through 27 buys. Uh, and Victoria, of course, as we mentioned already, we're all out for 315 and, and 322. Murdoch's decision to travel to Cootamundra mid-match irked the Melbourne press. The Argus on the 17th of February complained about his extraordinary development. It added that Murdoch behaved in a very undignified fashion. This conduct will not bear frequent repetition without the game being lowered considerably in the estimation <laughs> of the public. So he's copped an absolute fucking bollocking from the Melbourne press after he's made 321 of the best against their boys across three days, he's jumped on a train for 11 hours that night. It reminds me of it reminds me of the great A.E. Stoddart playing five sets of tennis after making his 485 and playing poker all night and doing it all again the next day. Well, this was simply a homage to that from the great Billy Murdoch. Except it wasn't party time. It was he had business in court. Now, it wasn't a tennis court, but if you're, you know, frankly, if someone's saying to me, uh, I've got a hot footed up to Kudamundra for a court appearance tomorrow, I'm thinking, I don't know if I want you in my cricket team. Like, <laughs> I feel there's a greater story to be told here. He's obviously had to sleep on the train. Don't know if he had a sleeper car um, in, in those days, but, you know, try to nap there with his hat over his eyes for the 11 hours to be fresh for, for the last day of this five day match. And the Melbourne Press have given him a bit of an out because they've qualified the statement. This conduct will not bear frequent repetition. You can pop up to Cootamundra as long as it's not more than once a season. (laughs) Any more than that will be taking the piss. (laughs) What a week it would have been at the Association Ground in Sydney, February of 1882. Billy Murdoch with his 3-2-1. Thank you, Pat Rogers, uh, for giving us the opportunity to explore that to start Story Time 69. Good gracious me. The other half of our doubleheader comes in from Tom. Uh, it is the 321, the same number from Tom Fisher with a very brief clue, which is 18 and BP. So all that I could establish from correspondence with Tom was this is not about the oil company, it's not about blood pressure, and it's not about Bridgesh Patel, the Indian middle order bat that we've talked about at some length on the show before. BP, I was like, is does this mean best player? Does this mean like an 18-year-old who won player of the match? So I started looking for 18-year-olds on debut, but none in test cricket with the initials BP as, as their first and last name. The only one with initials as given names is Brendan Paul Bracewell, who's the dad of current generation Doug Bracewell, as opposed to his uncle, who was also Doug Bracewell, <laughs> who was Paul Brendan Bracewell's brother. There's so many bloody Bracewells in New Zealand. You look at the relatives page, there's about 43 Bracewells who all played first-class cricket. Please remove um, four. <laughs> I am not a crank. BP Bracewell debuted in 78 at the Oval, took three wickets and made a pair. So, um, yeah, there, there wasn't much about being a best player there. I, I did look at bowling figures. There's nothing in the women's game that added up with BP. There's Bradley Peter Kruger, who took three for 21 for the Netherlands against Canada in 2010. No, nothing there. And so eventually I was like, look, I'm going to 
get together every person who's ever played test cricket and see if I can find the initials BP in there because that's the kind of way that I spend my time. It did occur to me for a minute it could be BP as in Bapu Nadkani, uh, the, the bloke who bowled 32 overs for five runs oh, yeah. uh, that we talked about the other week. But here are our test cricketers with the initials, first name, last name initials of BP. You've got Bill Playle, a specialist bat who played eight tests for New Zealand and averaged 10. Good work, Bill. Blair Pocock, uh, a New Zealand opener who played 15 tests and averaged 22. <laughs> Brenton Parchment, great name, sounds like a Neil Gaiman character or something. Brenton Parchment was a, a Windies opener who played two tests, averaging 13. And Bruce Perudo, who was a Windies bat, who moved to New Zealand. What is this New Zealand stuff? All of this New Zealand, everyone's in New Zealand who's a BP. Made a ton on debut, tanked thereafter, played 13 tests, averaging 21. So why is everyone with the initials BP crap in test cricket? This is something that I want to figure out. Um, and the only ones who aren't are two of our faves on the show, Bobby Peel, oh. the absolute drunkard slow left armour from Yorkshire. The pitch pisser. Um, who, he, he had yeah. the pitch parties before anyone did. He gave he the did. idea. Um, he did. And they had to put him in a cold shower before they sent him out to bowl because he was so <laughs> blind from the night before. Um, he was, you know, the, the the leading light for Andrew Simons in terms of showing up completely tanked to a game. Appropriately so, so when we're about to have an Australian-Bangladesh game start in a couple of minutes. <laughs> Absolutely. Here we go. Um, so, yeah, he got to 101 test wickets, Bobby Peel. And the other who, you know, you might have guessed by now that we've talked about a lot in the last few weeks, is Bill Ponsford, if we take the abbreviation to be his true name, Bill Ponsford. And Bill Ponsford may just be the link to the three-two-one because in the match where he put on the 451 partnership with Bradman and Ponsford made 266 and Australia made 701, they followed up by bowling out England for what score? 3-2-1. Anyway, I don't think that entirely links up with your clue, Tom, but... Look, clues can be very vague things, and this one was, and so I'm I'm handballing this into the uh, the listener stream, you know, on the Discord and whatnot. If you think eighteen and BP, so that's two numerals and two letters. If you can make that link to three, two, one, let us know how. All right, Jeff, that works for me. So first number down, three, two, one. Pat Rogers and Tom Fisher. Jeff, what's next? Rob Sinclair is next. Adam, ah, yes, uh, the number is in Great British Pounds, £3.57. It comes with no indication, no direction, no clue. Thus, it is an open field in which you may play. You may run <laughs> in any circles you desire. You may leap, you may frolic with three fifty-seven from Rob Sinclair. Ah, uh, yes, Rob Sinclair. Okay, three five seven. Thank you for giving us the freedom here. I know I've already done a triple ton uh, with Murdoch's three two one, but I couldn't help myself here. Three five seven. I see this plastered around my other home ground, the Oval, all the time because, of course, it's about Bobby Abel who made three hundred and fifty seven in May eighteen ninety nine. I could have gone with Bradman who made three five seven for South Australia against Victoria in nineteen thirty five, but I wanted to go back to the nineteenth century and I wanted to go back to the Oval. It was against Somerset where the governor, all five foot four of him, uh, walked out to bat and carried his bat for 357 out of 811. He was out there for 515 minutes, also struck 38 boundaries, I'll have you know, just like Billy Murdoch. One six. And how about this? Seven fives. So Hmm. one six, but seven fives across the course of an innings that lasted. So he, he hit a five, you know, a session, roughly across the course of an innings. Yeah. 
Didn't it? I mean, the the difference between fours and sixes and fives has been pretty fluid throughout um, th- throughout the history of the game. It's changed a lot. Um, oftentimes, um, there there were a lot of innings in which anything was a four. Didn't matter if you hit it in the air or on the ground or whatever, as long as it went beyond yep. the boundary, it was four. Then there were times when something that went over the boundary was a five. Then there were times that it was a six if you hit it out of the ground entirely, <laughs> but maybe it was a five if it landed in the seating bowl. There's a famous Victor Trumper innings for Randwick, I think, which is littered with fives because sixes were fives, so what we would think of as sixes. So there were fours and fives that he scored there. So in terms of what it meant when and where it can be pretty flexible throughout the history of okay, scoring. So it might have been that the seven balls ended up in what was the grandstand for what it was worth in 1899. There, much, there wasn't much to speak of in seating there, I'm sure, at that point. And one was twatted out onto Harleyford Road, which is the six. So um, that's mm. the distinction there in the breakdown. He did this as a 42-year-old, by the way, um, having made his first class debut back in 1881. He played on until 1904. So it's right towards the twilight of his career. Somerset got pumped by an innings in 379. So again, sort of more similarities to that Victoria-New South Wales game from 1882 that I was talking about before. He loves scoring square of the wicket, being a short man. Five foot four is quite short. That's like Michael J. Fox short. That's like Prince short. So, you know, mm. it's not sort of Sachin mm. short. It's, it's the next level down again. And I suppose, Jeff, there has been an increase in how tall men are, and women, I'm sure, but it's sort of more pronounced in men, I suppose, over the last hundred years or so. Yep. But even then, I'm, I'm tipping five foot four was fairly short, even by those standards. Yeah, yeah, like maybe it was just like a, a mid-sized rugby player or something in the 1800s <laughs> being, being five foot four. Um, it depends where you are. Like I'm a, I'm a tall person at, I don't know, six four, six five, kind of somewhere in there. And going to the Netherlands, for instance, it's, it's beautiful because I'm suddenly not the tallest person in the room anymore. I'm just like average size. Everyone's six six and up they're just a bloody enormous race of people so you know i I don't know where bobby abel's happy place uh, would have been but um, there must have been a country somewhere in the world like probably in peru (laughs) bobby abel would have been a giant you know certain certain parts of southeast asia bobby abel would have strode like a colossus uh, through through the streets of of certain cities. So there was a place for you, Bobby. No he bat. was gigantic in this innings. So 811 runs were scored in the innings. And because he opened the batting, of course, like that's how many runs were scored while he was out there, which remains a record in first-class cricket in terms of opening the batting, carrying one's bat. There's never been an innings more than that uh, when someone's carried their bat. Uh, it's uh, Incidentally, um, he was the first player to carry their bat in test cricket for England, I should say, Bobby Abel, who made 132 not out uh, he was one of um, it was one of his two Test centuries in thirteen Tests, but that was uh, opening the batting with grace uh, in a Test match at Sydney. So again, similarities to Murdoch, a decade on from that Murdoch innings in eighteen ninety two. Uh, they still uh, lost that Test and lost the Ashes, but yeah, one thirty two out of three oh seven for Bobby Abel that day. Also, by the way, Abel was the first player in Test cricket to outscore the opposition entirely. So going back a decade from his triple, Newlands in eighteen eighty nine, he made one hundred and twenty. And then they bowled out South Africa for 47 and 43. And, and that was the first person to achieve that, which is not for nothing. Do you think that Bobby Abel could dunk? 
I just wonder because you mentioned Prince and, and I Muxy remember Bugs. that, you know, the, the, uh, yeah, the, the clip of Prince levitating and, and dunking. I mean, obviously fictional, but yeah, how tall was Muggsy Bugs? Was he taller than Bobby Abel? Could Bobby Abel have reached the rim? That's what I, I, I want to know. Uh, Muggsy Bugs could dunk, couldn't he? That, I, that's sort of like a, a standout yeah. memory as a, as a 10-year-old being fascinated by this guy who was yep. as, probably as tall as we were in primary school or something like that, you know, five foot two, five foot three. Mm-hmm. But he had a... Uh, Big springs for a little man uh, and, and a good player too. So three five seven was the highest score at the Oval until 1938 when, of course, Len Hutton um, made his three six four. Thankfully, Kevin Peterson only made 355 in uh, 2015 at the Oval for Surrey, so Abel still holds that record. I, I reckon it would have been a shame mm-hmm. had KP passed it just by virtue of the sort of fixture that was when it was kind of all about one man. It was all about sort of getting him back in the test team somehow. And, uh, yeah, I feel I feel more relaxed about Abel uh, still having that record. Um, throughout his career, he played 627 first-class games. He reached uh, 100 on 74 occasions with 145 times above 50 beyond that for 33,500 runs, if you don't mind. He was the first player in the county championship to score 2,000-plus runs in successive seasons, and he loved it so much he did it every year between 1895 and 1902, so including the season we're referring to. And it was a record-breaking season in 1901. As a 44-year-old, he scored 3,309 runs in the season, which got him back into the test team in 1902 when he played the Ashes Test at Sheffield, the one test match that was played at at Bramall Lane. He was a, a local lad to South London. He learnt his cricket at Suffolk Park, and the reason I know that is that's where we net uh, with uh, myself and a few of the others when we get a chance to net, especially during the pandemic year. We, we go there uh, midweek quite a lot, uh, and there's a blue plaque there acknowledging that that's where Bobby Abel uh, learnt the game there in Suffolk Park, and he eventually died in Stockwell, still in South London, not far, just a couple of miles down the road from the Oval, in 1936 at age 79, and he loved doing what he did at five foot four. He had 11 kids, so a lot of runs and a lot of kids. Bobby Abel, 357 for Rob Sinclair. Mm, obviously um, didn't get very invested in episode 69, Bobby Abel, otherwise he might have had a couple fewer. Um, there are other ways about it, Bobby. There, 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 are, there are variations on a theme, my friend, that can, that can, can make the whole process a bit more interesting. Um, 3,309 runs in one season. That's, that's like you could have a quite extensive county career in this age and not make that many runs if you, know, you, if you like, think if you think that's a lot of runs you you just wait till what i'm about to tell you about in about 10 minutes time if you think that's a lot of runs to okay. make in a season we'll just wait till later in the show but you're fucking bang on okay. 3309 runs i mean we made a big deal i mean we often make a big deal around milestones in the championship Ten thousand runs like getting the ten thousand runs is is the marker of an excellent first class career i mean as i said he he, he twatted tw- two thousand plus for eight years in a row, including that, that one where he went above 3,000. I suppose I played a lot more first-class cricket. I reckon he holds the record as well for the most first-class games in a year. For some reason, that sticks in my mind, or mm-hmm. in a season in England anyway. Like, I think it was into the 40s or 50s. So, yeah, he was prolific in, in well, in raft of ways. Well, clearly they just treated cricket like coal mining or something like you got up every day and you went out there and you dug some runs you know you went back down the pit and you dug some more buckets of coal like there are runs to be made out there not a day to waste all right (laughs) bobby abel you you run pig little beauty our next number this is an absolute 
cracker. It comes in from David Jones. The number the number is almost incidental, right? So so there are there are different ways you can approach giving us a, a story or a number. But David sent us a photograph. Not a photograph of himself, not, not an intimate shot, um, but a, uh, you know, please, please reconsider. It doesn't have anything to do with cricket or the podcast. Um, but it was, it was a photograph of a cricketing team. It was a black and white photograph, a historical photograph. And the number that David sent in with that was $19.32. Very kind. Thank you, David. But the clue, the setup is even better than this. David says, I found this photo in the local archive and thought you might find someone or something interesting in the image to talk about on Storytime. If not, I would be interested to see what you do with the numbers 1932, for example, 193 for two, and then sent us through this photo. And, and I love the open field approach to this, that it's, it's not about an idea that David had that he wants us to find. It's about we have to find an idea for David. Yeah, Jeff, and before you, you give an answer to this, and I'm looking forward to this, uh, I should say what the photograph is. So it just it's just titled Australian Cricketers. Vancouver, British Columbia, June the 22nd, 1932. Uh, and there are a number of familiar faces here. Chuck Fleetwood Smith, uh, Stan McCabe, a bloke you might have heard of called Don Bradman, uh, Victor Richardson, Alan Kipak. So, you know, some fairly heavy-duty cricketers in this photo uh, in Canada in 1932, which I'm going to come back to in a sec, Jeff, but mm. I'm curious about how you've approached 1932 before I do that. Well, I, I knew that you were looking at the historical angle, so I did have a look at the numbers initially – I followed David's suggestion and wondered if anyone had taken 193 for two because that's a hell of an analysis. Um, it has never happened in international cricket, at least. It may have happened somewhere in first class that I struggled to unearth. But um, really, but not in, in all of in all of international cricket, a team's never made 193 mm-hmm. for two. No, no, I mean a, 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 an individual bowler. Oh, sorry. Right, I was going to say that that'd be a strange analysis not to have had mm. uh, secured by some team or other. Sorry, crack on. So I, I did start looking at scores as in you know, points during an innings where, where it might have been the score because um, I was having a look at variations on that for another answer a little bit later in the show. And curiously enough, in one of our favourites, the famous Kolkata Test of 2001 that we talk about all the time, in the first innings when Australia made 440-odd, Matthew Hayden and Justin Langer, who was batting at first drop, were separated with the score on 192 for three. That's when a wicket fell and when things started to go south because the hat-trick comes along at some point and then there's the Steve War recovery and with the tail and so on and so on. Jeff Marsh and Wayne Phillips, the other Wayne Phillips, Wayne B. Phillips, not Wayne N. Phillips, reached that score in Auckland in 1986 in a test that the Kiwis won under the leadership of a friend of the show, Jeremy Coney. And yes. um, there's also a, a, an ODI where Tendulkar and Dravid reached 193 for two, uh, putting on a partnership of 180 after an early wicket. Special stuff from yes. uh, the Indian maestros, yes. Yes, Jeff. The, 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 one, the one issue I see with your answer here, you've talked about and Justin Langer and Matthew Hayden, true blue, is it me and you? Is it mum and dad? Is it a cockatoo? 192 for three, not 193 for two. You might have got oh. the numbers mixed up there, Jeffrey. 
Yeah, that happens all the time. You know, that's that's a, an occupational hazard on this show um, is us getting the numbers wrong, more particularly me getting the numbers wrong and then accusing other people of getting the numbers wrong. Anyway, those were all great numbers. Um, they all have stories attached to them. They're not relevant to this, but it was more just to do in, just as an example of things that we could find around a number similar to 1932. <laughs> I wanted to do the photo. I wanted to do the photos. I remember when this um, when this uh, tour of Canada um, got quite a bit of attention. I'm thinking about eight to ten years ago. There was a big story on the seven thirty report about it. That dates me. The seven seven thirty. The seven thirty report hasn't been called that for a long time, has it? But mm-hmm. David Jones's photo, the tour to which he refers. Um, it's the second time in the program today I'm going to mention Rick Sissons. I, I talked about his book Cricket Colossus uh, around a great Billy Murdoch. Well, he also wrote a book around the, the Australian tour to Canada, or in North America full stop really, in 1932 called The Don Meets the Babe. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this ridiculous tour. I mean, I'm talking Please. farcical. I mean... So much so that when I went to bed last night, I was telling Rach about it and thinking to myself, this would be my dream come true type stuff. Like, all I want to do now is go on a cricket tour just like this. It included (laughs) between June and August 1932, 51 matches in 20 towns across 76 days with just 12 cricketers. They had ch- how, how long were their matches? <laughs> well, well, they they t ten. They, 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 they were playing. Well, by the looks of things, some of them were single innings games, and some of them were two day games. But I mean, not many of them were two day games. The majority of them were played across one day. They still had mm. enough time to win four of the games outright. Thirty nine of them on the first innings, and only lost one on the first innings. So they were nearly invincible across the tour. Mm. It was a round trip of ten thousand kilometres, and all done for a hundred quid each. So basically, how it worked was these promoters wanted this trip to happen. They they hit up Arthur Maley, who was of course a, a, a well known to Don Bradman, former teammate, all the rest. I think they would have crossed mm-hmm. over just. And Maley um, put it to Bradman that this trip wouldn't go ahead unless he was going to go. And Bradman was getting married to Jesse in April 1932, just about two months before they were, they were set to sail. So Jesse said to Don, look, we'll go on the proviso that we can turn it into our honeymoon. And so they did. And because Bradman mm. was about to go into – it was just when he was moving into journalism, as we later learned. Uh, always, through, always thrifty, Bradman. Yes. Always, uh, always wise <laughs> to the expenditure of a penny. He's like, imagine if I could get paid to go on my honeymoon. <laughs> Imagine I could have a honeymoon that lasts 76 days where 51 of them are playing cricket. But it was. Yeah, and I'm being paid money for the privilege. Yeah, that's right. Well, he wasn't getting paid from his work. So he just got into journalism, as we know. He was getting 100 quid. Well, yeah, was, I suppose. That was a decent payday in those days. Yeah, maybe not for the amount of time he was away, but there, there was a gap there and, and Maley filled the gap, so Bradman still... So the, the work that he wasn't doing for the paper and for the radio station, I think TUE was where he was working, wasn't it? He, he didn't get that money. Instead, he went on this tour. But we know what Bradman was like. He, he was like bang up for going anyway, even though there was this particularly heavy workload. Some guys weren't paid though. Not not everyone was paid to go on the tour. I mean, it was just one of those. It was it's a very odd team when you look through it. Victor Richardson was the captain. And how's this? I talked about runs in a season. Bradman, fifty one games, fifty one innings. So I guess by definition they were all single innings matches. They they must have won some outright after batting once and and making a team bat twice in the same day and making them follow on. 3,777 runs at 102 with 20 centuries, including two doubles. 
Just, just you know, just when I played, just when I played seventy six days of cricket in America and made twenty tons at one hundred and two, which tended to be the way with Bradman and his batting average. Yeah, um, Stan McCabe, a ton every two point five four innings or something like that. Yeah, not not a million miles away from I suppose what he did in Test cricket in terms of tons per Test. Yeah, one point seven six. One point seven six yeah. per match, but um, but slightly higher per innings, obviously. Yeah. Um, McCabe averaged 55. He, he made 2,361 runs himself. But, yeah, Alan Kipak, Stan McCabe, Victor Richardson, uh, Arthur Maley, they were all there because Maley arranged the trip. And then there's the Babe Ruth bit. So he's there at Yankee Stadium. They go along to watch a game, thus the meeting between mm-hmm. the Don and the Babe, the, the, the title of Rick's book. And Babe Ruth was fascinated by the fact that you don't have to run when hitting the ball. That was like really into that when talking to Bradman. He just couldn't quite get his head around the idea <laughs> that he could slug dingers in cricket and not have to, not to, have yeah, to do any of well, the of course hard work. He, of course he was into it. He, was a, you know, he enjoyed a pie, Babe Ruth. <laughs> um, you know, enjoyed getting stuck in at the carvery. I, I, when I think of Babe Ruth, I think of like in my mind, and, and I, look, I, I played baseball when I lived in the States, but I don't know an awful lot about the history of the game, bits and pieces. But I think of Babe Ruth mm. being a combination of W.G. Grace and Bradman, and I suppose right. the, the era he played in uh, bridges the two. I think of Babe Ruth as being a delightful little talking pig. Um, <laughs> that's always the image that, that go, you know, wearing a baseball hat and, and those little sort of pantaloons that they used to wear, those sort of puffy little trousers, and you know, frolicking around the bases after it's it's probably holding the bat in its teeth or something. And it's a curse named after him. That is well. That is well. I know. Uh, right. So, so one more bit you're going to like, Jeff. That goes back to last week. So they finished their tour in California, specifically in Hollywood, where, as we learnt last week on Storytime, Aubrey Smith, Test cricket's greatest actor, won Test match before going on and being a film star and doing a whole number of amazing things in his storied life. You're offending the career of Brett Lee there. Um, in, True. In Bollywood. True. While we, uh, behind the behind the curtain here, we, we recorded some of this before and we're recording it, some of it now. Between times, Australia's um, game against Bangladesh has been run and won and there's a great clip going viral at the moment where Mark Waugh is working out how many overs Australia should bat for uh, and, uh-huh. and he proceeds to say something to the effect of, what, 76? Yeah, so um, 8 12s are 76, at least it was when I went to school and Brett Lee's sitting next to him like... What the fuck are you on about, champion? <laughs> it's a brilliant, uh, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant bit uh, from Brett Lee just looking at him like, what's going on here? So, uh, 1932. Let's go back there. I was wondering, knowing that the Hollywood Cricket Club that we investigated in some depth last week started in 1932, is it possible they played against Hollywood CC? Alas, not to be. Hollywood CC starts later in the year, just after Bodyline. That's when Aubrey Smith gets involved in arranging the players. But they mm. played three matches against a team that was called Hollywood, and they finished off with a game, the last game of the tour, against a team called the British-born Film Stars. <laughs> and they, they won them all convincingly. So if you go onto Cricket Archive, <laughs> there is a page for the British-born Film Stars. I mean, this is the great thing about Cricket Archive. Any team that's been anything, it gets a run on there. Australia, predictably, or the Australian eleven, sorry, won all four of those, but Bradman didn't make any hundreds. The Film Stars, Jeff, you'll like to know, fielded 18 batsmen. Uh, which was a little bit cheeky, which gave Chuck Fleetwood Smith, the young boy on the tour, uh, the chance to take nine for 31 out of the 17 wickets uh, they picked up there. So nine for him. Chuck was the, yeah, as I say, the young bloke on the trip. He would have loved the opportunity at the end of the tour, by the way, in Hollywood to get on the piss with Clark Gable, who evidently was um, there with them. And and we know that that Chuck Fleetwood Smith um, was a bit of a party boy. He took (laughs) Chuck 
238 wickets at 7.5 across the duration of the tour. So he was the main bowler, the left armour. Um, look, there was some non-pros there. There was some club players. There was a doctor. There was a lawyer. There was a, a stockbroker. It was a genuine touring team. So even though they played under the, the name Australian Eleven, that's purely on the basis that they were all from Australia. And one other player I want to note who was in the team in the photo, it stood out to me. I thought, hey, this guy must be the team manager. This guy in the right-hand corner must just be some really old guy who's about a 1,000 years old who, who was just along for the ride. Alas, mm-hmm. it was the wicketkeeper who played in just about every game at age 54, Hanson Carter, or Sammy Carter, Jeff, as you would know him, who played 28 mm-hmm. test matches between 1907 and 1922, and he was the pioneer of the scoop shot well before um, uh, Dilshan came around. By the way, um, uh, Dilshan playing for my club uh, this weekend in a practice match. And also, I mean, Hanson Carter having a name made up of two of the uh, male pop sensations of the early 2000s. That that must be why. That must be. That must be. That'd be. Talk about a super group there, named after Hanson Carter, the Backstreet Boys, and Hanson together at last. And and a really nice part of this, I mentioned that there's this um, there's this uh, this film they recovered. Uh, It's now in the National Film and Sound Archive. Thirty minutes of black and white. Um, There's no audio on it, but it's all there available. So if you want to watch them uh, going through their paces uh, in the months of June, July, and August 1932, where Bradman made three. 1,777 runs, uh, you can do exactly that. In fact, Jeff, I might mm. put, po- I might pop that link uh, inside the show notes. And, and that's the story I wanted to tell, the story of the picture. What would the equivalent now be of the, the Bradman Babe Ruth meeting? Is it Steve Smith meets Shohei Otani? Like, <laughs> you know, I don't know what the conversation would be like in that. Be a pretty taciturn chat, I imagine. Yeah, I suppose the way that the the players are hardwired this day, these days, and, and their interests and how they're aligned, it'd probably be more like uh, Rory McIlroy or, or something like that. That they, they'd far prefer to to meet a golfer than, than to um than to meet a baseball. You know player. what it'd be now if it were happening now? It'd be Don Bradman and Babe Ruth doing an Instagram reels bit together. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like probably probably Spono, probably flogging like you know shares in some. Home delivery seafood app or something, um, you know, shelfer. Um. Yes, yeah, so, some some uh, some. Um, what do they call it? Collab, a collab on Instagram where they are on each other's feeds or something like that. Instead of talking about uh, not running when you when you clout it for four. Thank you, David Jones. That is a brilliant pledge. A great idea as well. We always like it when we can uh, veer a bit away from the uh, the beaten track that we've uh, that we've laid here on Storytime 1932. Next, Jeff is 471. Andrew Gilberson, uh, our Brazilian correspondent, the Brazilian midfielder, uh, is back. Mm-hmm. We, we, uh, we had a number of his earlier this year, and he's back in the list with the re-up, 471 in the AUD. Uh, the clue is, this is a number that relates to a player you've often discussed as a metric for occupying the crease, but from an innings that did not see them make their highest score. However, it was an important innings in terms of setting a new benchmark for a partnership for the fall of a wicket. And this number relates to the progress of the innings when they eventually fell. Jeff. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, 471 and the progress of the innings when they eventually fell. The first thing I thought of was that a few weeks ago we'd been talking about the monster, the big one, the Everest of partnerships in Test cricket between Sangakara and Jayawardena when they made 624 together because something rang a bell about what I'd been looking up around that 
number. And so I checked back and sure enough, there's what I thought it might have been, that when those two ended the second day of that test against South Africa, the score was 485 for two. Um, bizarrely enough, they had actually been two down for 14 <laughs> and then had come together and, and just batted through the rest of the day. So their partnership at the time, at Stumps, was 471, which okay. was Andrew's number. Obviously, it went on to be much bigger. And so this doesn't quite fit with Andrew's clue because he's talking about the team score at the end of a partnership, the progress of the innings when they eventually fell, which tells me that this has to be a team score that's on 471 when a partnership ends. And so that's why I was looking up partnerships as I was talking about earlier. So this took a fair bit of digging to find mid-innings instances of these partnerships. But I'll say off the top, I don't have the answer to this, um, but I, I was I was winding my way around it in various um, okay. increasingly large circles. So it's I, never got, happened. Yeah, I, mm. I wonder. I wonder, Jeff, I wonder. I mean, mm. the, the, looking at the clue, who is a player that we use as a benchmark for a, a long innings or occupying a crease? It's the Cowan ton, isn't it? And on that basis, yes. I see that Ed Cowan – uh, in the sixteen seventeen season, when we were pushing very hard for his recall, made four hundred and seventy one runs that year. I mean, it, it, oh, yeah. it seems a bit too uh, basic, bitch, for me to to think that that's it. But just thought I'd put that out there. Well, I'm I'm just trying to work it out in re- so with the clue saying this number relates to the progress of the innings. Mm, right? mm. So it's got to be it's got to be um, setting a new benchmark for a partnership for the fall of a wicket. So what this is telling me is that it's it's the X wicket, you know, the partnership for the sixth wicket, for instance, and it's 471 when it ends. But that is a very good point about Cowan. And that is, I suppose there are there are a few, there's Madassa Nazar, there's Hanif Muhammad, there are a few, a few others that we talk about in terms of just blocking the shit out of it, Barnacle, Bailey and the rest. <laughs> yeah, so... Look, I reckon I, Bailey. I reckon, I reckon it's more likely to be Bailey than Cowan purely because... We've often discussed as a metric for occupying. I oh, know, yeah, it's probably more. It feels more Cowan, doesn't it, um, mm. than it does Bailey? But it could easily be Bailey as well because we've talked a lot about the slowest half century in Test cricket, where he comes up routinely. So here's here's the thing that I've looked through. Never yep. in women's Test or one day cricket has a wicket fallen with the score on four seventy one. Okay, um, you know because there've been those those couple of massive ODI scores where I thought it might have happened in there, but but no, the. There have been a f- quite a number in men's test cricket. The largest test partnership to end with the score on 471 was Tendulkar again and Ganguly when they put on 256 against Sri Lanka in Mumbai in 97. That fits in with some things in that Surav made 173, Sachin made 148, so neither made their highest score. But in terms of highest partnerships for the fourth innings, there are... 40 partnerships that are bigger than that one. So it, it's not even the biggest ganguly Tendulkar partnership for the four <laughs> things, you know, let alone the biggest of all time. Nothing else is remotely close to being a record. So Uncle Rod Marsh and Kerry O'Keefe put on 97 together in the Sydney Ashes test of 1971 um, that ended with the score on 471, but there are literally hundreds of bigger partnerships for the seventh wicket. 
and there are, there, are, there are a few notable ones that end with the score on 471, um, Shane Warne and Mike Whitney in Colombo. So in a match that Australia won by 16 runs, yeah, um, that Famously. pair put on 49 runs in the first innings and 40 runs in the second innings. And in the second innings, that's when their partnership ends with the score on 471. And there's also a friend of the show, Ian O'Brien, put on 62 with Daryl Tuffy when Tuffy made his best test score of 80 not out. O'Brien was out, stumped by Cameron Akmal, bowled by Danish Canaria, <laughs> batting with Daryl Tuffy. <laughs> Quite a few, there must have been some sports betting chat going on out there. There must have been some racing tips going on in the middle. Think about that Pakistan team for a moment. Salman Butt in there, two Akmals, Danish Canaria, Muhammad Amir and Muhammad Asif. I mean... Well, I mean. <laughs> It must have been somebody must have been firing up the apps to uh, <laughs> to, to place a few wages here and there. A few uh, a few uh, a few leather jackets being dished out in the dressing rooms after, perhaps. By the way, have you watched yes. that yet? On um, I can't remember which which I think it might be on Netflix or Amazon, one or the other. The uh, bad sport documentary about Hansi. No, recommended watching. It is really really good. So there's a, a I think it's on Amazon. Might be on Netflix. Can't remember one or the other. How middle class is that? I've got both. Um, that, uh, that that has a, a series of documentaries about like where, like basically where, where there's corruption in sport, and they've dedicated one, and it's awesome uh, to the Cronje mm. Frago. And I just, for, I mean, as you do over time, right? You forget a lot of the detail, and this really does pour over every bit of it. It mm. features his brother, his wife, his widow, a number of journalists who are covering it at the time, a number of other teammates. Herschel Gibbs speaks to camera, so um, just a, a TV recommendation mm. on the way through. Bad sport with Hansi Cronje. Okay. And, and the only other little one that. That, that I noticed that was worth mentioning, I thought was um, Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson put on 54 against the Windies in 1975, a partnership that ended with the score on 471. There was one wicket left in that match and who should come in next to bat but Rowdy Mallet. Oh, nice. You mentioned off the top of the show. So I found a bunch of partnerships that end with the score on 471, but none of them are close to being a record for that particular wicket. So I don't know, Andrew Gilbertson, I don't know where I'm going with this or what you wanted me to do with this, but I've given you a bunch of other things instead. And if that's not like most of my relationships, then I don't know (laughs) what to tell you. Andrew, uh, send us, drop us a line. If it is sort of Cowan adjacent, that's fine. We'd love to tell a story about Ed Cowan next week. But give us a really firm shove. That, that strikes me as a kind of clue where if you, if you give us a vague secondary clue, we're going to be back on week three and week four and, and so on. So give us a really sh- a firm mm-hmm. shove that we get to the start line uh, on the revisits next week. And Jeff, Andrew mm-hmm. has been pulled out of the hat, so to speak. He's won the slab from Brick Lane. Andrew, I don't know if they ship to Brazil, um, but you can find out. Uh, they'll probably make an exception for a, a celebrity such as yourself, such a, a dynamo at the at the back end of the diamond midfield formation. Um, that left foot, Andrew, that left foot. Still think about it. You get to give away a slab. You get to give it away to yourself if you want it or to someone else. If you don't want it, they have to be in Australia. Those are the only rules, but Brick Lane make the one love pale ale which is all about bringing people together that's their whole vibe that's their whole shtick is to make a pale ale that you can drink when it's warm and the summer is happening and it's full of fruity flavors and passion fruits and tropical notes and all the sort of good things that pale ales are supposed to taste like and it's one love baby it's one love Uh, so 
That's bricklanebrewing.com if you want to uh, check out all the other beers they make. And, look, if you sign up to support the show, you have a very good chance of winning this slap, like a one in four chance probably of winning a slap um, yep. just for signing up on Patreon. Like, you, you chuck in two bucks on Patreon. It's better, way better than a raffle ticket. And you end up with a, a one in four chance of walking away with a, with a case of uh, cold brews or giving them to someone else. Brick Lane, they're lovely. Check them out. That's a great idea. That, that's, a, that's, that's well put, really, isn't it? It's the equivalent of, yeah, if you chuck in a... I know a lot of other podcasts talk about buying us a coffee per, per month or per week or whatever it is or buying us a pint. For us, we, we give you the drink. We'll buy you a pint. We'll buy you. Well, 24 of them maybe, 24 tins at least. So, And I should say as well that with Melbourne out of lockdown, uh, there'll be the chance to visit uh, our friends at Brick Lane. They're at the Queen Victoria Market where they have their tap house operation there four nights a week uh, or they're in Dandenong South as well. Tell them that we sent you great feedback on the Maxi 145 offer that ran... Uh, uh, earlier, well, last month in October. Uh, we'll have another one of those coming up soon. And yes, great to be working with Brick Lane, as we will be throughout the course of the Ashes summer. Jeff, uh, we've got one more number to deal with, I think, today. No, sorry, two more numbers. The penultimate number is one that I've taken on. It's from Joel Crosby, uh, and it is £1.37. So I'm going to assume uh, that Joel is corresponding with us from the UK. The fact that there's no clue, we always like that. And I don't want to overplay this point, but no clue equals we can tell a, a story any which way and then we can come back and tell another story for you via the revisits, although acknowledging that we've got about 25 revisits in the queue at the moment. Trust yeah. me, we'll get there after the World Cup. Uh, now, I thought that in all probability, um, Joel wasn't talking about Bernard James Tyndall Bosanquet, uh, who Jeff has done before. Um, Bosanquet or Bosanquet? Bosanquet, isn't it? I would say Bosanquet. 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 As, as in a, yeah, but you look, there are 10 different ways you can do it and uh, they all have their um, they all they all have their advantages um, the suitable phrase to say on episode 69 yes absolutely uh, I, I I thought for a moment I might discuss the highest test score of Raman Sabarao who was the um, an England test batsman uh, uh, in, in the middle of the 20th century but also was the match referee Jeff in that bonkers uh, one day international in 1999 was it at border ground I think it was in Guyana where there was a pitch invasion at the end there was three runs was it two runs who knows how many runs they took I think it was Warren and Steve War or was it something like that. I know Steve War was out there um, but the pitch invasion uh, rendered the whole well they meant they had to call the whole game off and that got me thinking. So let's just park that for a moment. Uh, I'm thinking about pitch invasions, right? Uh, that's where my head is already at when I'm doing the research on 137. I'll quickly swing via Chris Wokes, who made an unbeaten 137 at Lords against India in 2018. He's won Test Century, which uh, was a, a lovely inning. So it could be any of those. But I've got a feeling, uh, just it's in my water here now, that it is going to relate to my first hunch, pitch invasions. And then I thought, hang on a minute, let's talk about Marcus Triscothic. Let's give him some love. Uh, if Joel's of a certain age, roughly our age, he might have saw mm. Triscothic. Joel Crosby strikes me as the kind of name of someone is about our age, doesn't it? It feels like a, yeah. you're in your 20s or your 30s if your name's Joel Crosby, it would be my guess. Mm. So you could have mm-hmm. grown up loving Marcus Triscothic. And indeed, you probably grew up when one-day cricket meant a tremendous amount, pre-T20s when one-day bilateral series had a lot more riding on them than what it often feels like at the moment, for better or for worse. Now, Mm -hmm. in 2001, much as it was in England in 
93 or 97 or or other Ashes years, the one-dayers came before the Test matches started. And I've argued, and you're, you've argued as well, Jeff, in print, that that's how it should be. When, when, we, when we come to England or when Australia's in England, they should play the one-dayers first to whet the appetite. It worked beautifully in 93, of course, with Robin Smith and 97 with the Holyoke brothers and beyond that in 2005 with Bangladesh beating Australia and then that crazy tide game at Lords and, and all the rest of it. So they do serve as a wonderful scene setter as they did in, in 2001, which personally, I, I remember these one day as like, just, like I, I was bang up for that Ashes series after Australia had played in India. Um, I had cable television where I was living in Warnable at the time, which was a bit of a novelty. And all these one days were on, were on cable television. So I was able to sit up through the night and watch them uh, from England, which I was kind of fascinated by. And look, Australia were in their pomp and they ultimately carved up the competition. It was a tri-series between Pakistan and England and Australia. And there was this extraordinary pitch invasion mm. at Leeds where England had to concede the game. So Pakistan uh, were two runs short and oh, – sorry, they were six runs short of victory. There was a boundary struck and they, they being the crowd, didn't realise there were still two runs to get. So they stampeded the ground a la uh, mm. what happened when Bangladesh beat them in the 1999 World Cup uh, at Northants. I remember watching this live actually um, yeah. at the time. Yeah, that it, it was like it, it was a shot over deep mid-wicket that landed about a metre or less in from the road. Exactly. Um, and everyone thought it had carried for six, like Elise Perry celebrating the double ton style. You think it's gone for six, um, celebrate accordingly and then find out it was only four. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I think it was Muhammad Yusuf who struck the, the winning runs. And, and you're, you're dead right though. They thought it was a six. That's why they, they charged the field. And I'm talking like proper brawling over the stumps. Mm. Ripping out everything. It had been a problem um, for a while when Pakistan was playing in England. Earlier in the game, by the way, Wakar Yunus took 7 for 36, but that was completely overshadowed by England and Alex Stewart having to concede the game, having not lost the game, because there was no way they could go back out because the pitch was trashed. They'd pinched all the stumps and they're like, fuck this, we're not going back on um, after all of that. So that's the pitch invasion in that series. And then a week later, um, Pakistan are playing England again, uh, at the home of cricket at Lords, and Pakistan make 242 for eight. Um, Muhammad Yusuf again uh, 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 making 82 and, and top scoring. I think he might have been Yusuf Yahana in 2000. It would have been, yeah. Yeah, it was before he um, changed his name against a, a, a pace attack of Goff Kadik. A la Prince. Yeah. Could Muhammad Yusuf dunk? <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> He was the he was probably the one player missing from the Pakistani greats who featured in that mm. clip that you posted the other day, Jeff, when they beat India in, in their opening game of the tournament. And that the, <laughs> the dancing the, clip. The, the dancing with I mean it doesn't do it justice because we're on a podcast here, but Wazim Akram, who's done plenty of work on the dance floor over the years, I'm tipping. Yep. And he looked the part, didn't he, waving his hands in the air and um, there was a uh, Well Wahab Riaz was Wahab the one Riaz. who really had it. <laughs> Wahab Wahab knew when the beat was gonna drop and he went up for it. Wahab Riaz has reached for a few lasers in his time. I'm gonna give you that tip. Imagine Wahab, Wahab and Steve O'Keefe tearing it up on the D floor. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they have. In terms of England's pace attack that day at Lords, Goff, Caddick, Mullally, name a more iconic trio from that era. Uh, they took two wickets each. And then Trez thought... 
fuck it, I'm going to do this on my own. Well, at least he tried. He made 137, Joel's number, out of 142, which is an epic effort when you put that into 2001 money. Like No one was making scores like that or, or at a strike rate like that, really, apart from Adam Gilchrist uh, in 2001. And they take it all the way to the final Wait, over. When, when you say out of 142... Oh, sorry, 142 scores. My apologies. From, from right. 142 deliveries. But it, go, it goes all... <laughs> Just for a minute, I was like, hang on. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's real Bannerman special stuff right there. But no, he hits a boundary from the last ball of the 49th over so they need that, and eventually they need six from five and suck lanes bowling and there's a sweep shot high in there from Triscothic and in runs Shahid Afridi running like he's going to win the Olympic Games 100 metres sprints in takes out another fielder uh, and takes this amazing catch and he stands up and you can imagine what his celebration was like Jeff and guess who the fielder that he took out playing this mm-hmm. week, Shaab Malik. <laughs> As a young lad, <laughs> 20 years ago, Shaab Malik playing for Pakistan, probably a teenager still then, and that's who Afridi yeah. takes out. So uh, that amazing innings of 137 uh, comes to a close there. That's the ninth wicket to fall. Uh, they don't get the runs with Andy Caddick stumped from the final ball uh, of the match. England are all out and fall two runs short. Uh, on Triscothic, it, it was one of 12 centuries he made in 123 one-day internationals. He was totally ahead of his time as a one-day opener. Um, Australia went on to win that final easily. They um, bowled out Pakistan for 152 in the final and almost a carbon copy of the World Cup final two years earlier at Lords. They did it just one wicket down, Adam Gilchrist making 76 not out. And I loved going back through this, through the clips and through the highlights. Um, as I mentioned before, it was they were really happy days for 50-over cricket and triangular series as well. I say bring them back, especially when they're in England and especially when Australia are there for the Ashes. Let's have a a tri-series or at least a bilateral one-day series before we get to the Red Bull stuff. Yeah, Triscothic was right up there um, in in that measure that I like to keep track of, of centuries, one-day centuries per innings where Tendulkar was the absolute gold standard for a long time at nine and a half and almost no one else was anywhere nearing except Triscothic was about ten and a half. I think he was the, yep, yep. the next best before Coley and Hashimamla came along and took it down to about five or six. So uh, that was the uh, the consistency with which he was able to score big. We've got one more number. It's from Alistair Townsend, our other friend from Brazil. It's coming in in pounds. Now, this is an interesting one because it's eight pounds and 55 pence. There is a clue that says blanching before a most colourful moment, um, except Alistair had to contact us later and say, I don't know why I sent you 855 because it was meant to be 327. Um, <laughs> so... How that happened, I don't know, but he he also gave me a clue at that point. He said Blanche relates to this player's name. So Blanche, Blanc, Montblanc. Blanche Devereaux. Yeah, Blanche Devereaux Smith. (laughs) Blanche Devereaux. I mean, before her time as well, really, on the Golden Girls, she was liberated, shall we say, in that that household. Uh, Um. It, it's Craig White was where I started looking because I, I thought that's kind of in Alistair's wheelhouse where what was the um, – was it Martin Saggers was the subject of Alistair's previous clue? So, yes, you know, I was, yes. I was thinking early 2000s um, bowlers in England who were not necessarily greats of the game. This relates – a colourful moment, right? This relates to a hat-trick because Craig White took a hat-trick for Yorkshire versus Kent in June 2000, right? This is – it's in a one-day game. 
they're chasing a small score. Kent, they've got Matthew Fleming, the captain, batting with Paul Nixon, who we mentioned a couple of shows ago as well, smacking them around. And then Craig White has Fleming caught a backward point. A couple of they're seven down at that point, I think. He follows up with two LBWs against Min Patel and David Masters. Now, there's a dream dinner party just in, in your hat-trick alone, <laughs> the bowler and, and the three dismissed players. That gets them nine wickets down, and who should come in to finish it off but Chris Silverwood. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's where he got his grudge against spinners. Maybe he was like, I just really hate Min Patel and I'll never pick a spinner in when I'm the coach of England. So they, they defended 163. They kept, uh, kept Kent 24 runs short. But this this link sort of links in the blanching and the colourful moment because three weeks before this hat trick, Craig White had passed out and smashed his face in a gutter in Scarbados, um, and it wasn't for fun reasons. It wasn't a two in the morning. It was like a mid afternoon doing the shopping. Um, thankfully, not in the car driving, but on foot with the shopping bags. When he just completely blanked, like. He said his his vision went grey and then he woke up in a gutter with someone calling an ambulance Um, and they did all of these medical checks and they couldn't find anything wrong with him. He hadn't had a heart attack, he hadn't had a seizure, he hadn't had a brain aneurysm. They had no idea what was wrong and so he sat around for a few weeks sort of hoping that doctors would figure something out and they didn't. So he kept playing cricket, came back in this match, took his hat trick and then two weeks after that he was in the England squad for the Lord's Test. And so I suppose blanching may also be what he did when he fainted, when the blood drained from his face. Then he had his hat-trick. Then he was playing for England all in the space of five or six weeks in the summer of 2000 when Craig White was king. Yeah, absolutely. That's when when White um, bowled very fast, uh, the 90-mile-an-hour man, as they called him before he came to Australia in in 2002. But, yeah, that, that series against the Windies in... 2000 bowling with Goff and Caddick and that was a, a big series for the England Quicks uh, and uh, that was the, of course the last series played by um, Courtney Walsh and, uh, and Kirtley Ambrose and that was a photo that we talked about a couple of weeks ago uh, with Phil Brown when he was on the show. Alistair, hopefully I've remembered to respond to your DM uh, before you're listening to this show. Believe me, I have read it, and it's very kind of you to drop me a line uh, saying that uh, saying that there might be an opportunity for us to get some Brazil women's kit delivered to us, Jeff, pretty soon, and we can't wait oh, for that. Yeah. They've had a good week, the Brazil women. Uh, I'm sure, Jeff, you saw on, on social media the end of the, 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 the series they're playing in, which we talked Did about on the weekly show a few weeks ago with Roberta leading the team in a dance mm-hmm. with all the other players. And, I mean, they, they clearly had a tremendous time over there and um, have won a lot of new fans along the way five wickets in the last over defending two runs to win go on go on brazil (laughs) Ah, stop it stop it you lot right um we have done all the new numbers if you want to send us a number really easy go to patreon.com slash the final word and you can help us make the show you can support the show and you can be on the show be part of the show um and and get involved in all the stuff we're doing on the patron page with the uh, discord chat channels and all the rest of it yeah discord's amazing uh we've got uh, in terms of what we're going to be doing across the australian summer live shows are in the offing we haven't quite nailed down how they're going to sequence yet but we're looking at doing one in melbourne on the 13th of december in adelaide on the 14th of december jeff backing up one day in one city one day in the next from mm-hmm. total rock star stuff and then the 
4th of January in Sydney. So, yes, uh, getting involved and supporting the show and then we'll be able to do things like that, which are a bit outside the square. But, um, yeah, all that support makes uh, those kinds of things possible at patreon.com forward slash the final word. And, uh, and it's been great, uh, especially uh, through the course of uh, this summer, having a lot of new people join up, having found us on YouTube, which is pretty cool. So if you're one of those people who, who've watched the final word rather than listened to the final word and thought, you know what, I want to be, I want to be part of that, welcome one and all. Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. Right. Shall we knock off a couple of revisits that we've got? I don't think we have many that we've solved this week, but we will come back to more of them in future weeks, uh, and then we'll wrap up this show. The 509 from Avinash Shanoi. Adam gave a long story about Tim May's 5 for 9 against the Windies in 93, which Avinash enjoyed and said he spent some time checking out that 5 for spell of Tim May. However, for me, 509 has something to do with Raul Dravid and the number of internationals he played across all formats. That solitary T20 international sticking out like a sore thumb. I remember watching some footage of that with, yeah, Raul Dravid just cutting sick and slamming sixes over the league side in the, the one T20 innings he played before he immediately retired from the format. Yeah, that, that's right. So, I mean, he's basically given us the answer in terms of it being 509, the number of games that Rahul Dravid played for India, 164 test matches, 13,288 runs at 52, extraordinary career, uh, 344 one-day internationals where he made nearly 11,000 runs. And then, as you say, the one T20 uh, where he made 31 off 21, a strike rate of 148 and said, that's enough for me. But once I got into the numbers here, Jeff, I needed to learn more. By the way, Rahul Dravid, uh, since I prepared this answer, has been appointed the new coach of India. Uh, no big deal. He's taking over from Ravi Shastri after this competition. So we're going to see a lot more of Rahul Dravid uh, over the next few years in, in that capacity. But what stood out to me was that what's the go with the test wicket? It stands out like a beacon. I mean, you go through uh, Rahul Dravid's career with the ball. There were um, four wickets in one-day internationals. There were five wickets in first-class cricket. There were four in list-day cricket, so all of his list-day wickets were taken in one-dayers, and one test wicket. Now, I know that he bowled off-spin, and I went back and and took a look at the wickets that were available on YouTube, but none of them are video compilations captured when Rahul Dravid picked up Ridley Jacobs in 2002 on a true stinking pitch at the St. John's Freeway at Antigua at the rec ground before that was out of commission. Just to put it into context, in the first innings, India made 513 for nine with a Lakshman 100, but they batted for 196 overs, so well into the third day. Uh, So the Windies replied in kind and batted on and made 629 for nine and said, fuck it, we're going to keep you in the field uh, for two and a half days as well. Uh, Carl Hooper, who was the captain, and Shivnarayan Chandapal uh, both made 136. And Ridley Jacobs, the wicketkeeper, who, Jeff, we both remember so fondly from the 2000-2001 tour of Australia, uh, made 118 down at number seven as the wicketkeeper. And on the final day, he was out for 118, caught Lakshman, bowled Dravid. So the two men from Calcutta 01 combining mm-hmm. again. Now, as I say, there's a compilation of Rahul Dravid, what what claims to be all Rahul Dravid international wickets. And I'm like, you beauty, strap yourself in. Here's six minutes of YouTube I'm going to really enjoy. 1.5 million people (laughs) have enjoyed it already. Well, add one to that tally. But it's not true. It has all of the one-day wickets, for instance, Mm. a lovely bit of bowling to get rid of Saeed Amwa. 
good wicket celebration too. You wouldn't associate Dravid with a, a big James Pattinson-style wicket celebration, but but there he was. Um, Lance Klusner, uh, who was caught and bowled as part of a twofer. Um, but yes, the, the, the Jacobs dismissal is nowhere. I had a read about it, and even that in Wisden and other match reports talks of the wicket happening, but not how it happened. Why was he bowling in the first place? Why did Rahul Dravid bowl 11 overs, taking one for 18 in that innings in Antigua. I mean, sure, they're all knackered, but everybody bowled for India because Anil Kumble broke his jaw in the game and couldn't send down long spells. And of course, it was drifting towards a draw. So they all they all had a go at different points. Then I decided to stop digging. I arrived at the conclusion that someone is going to be able to tell us how mm-hmm. that wicket came to pass. How did Ridley Jacobs get out to Rahul Dravid? Where was Lakshman fielding? What was the context of the game and all the rest of it? And indeed, is there a video that I've just missed on YouTube? Has someone documented that somewhere inside an existing uh, package of, of, uh, of wickets that I haven't seen? If so, send it our way on, on Patreon or on Discord or on email, finalwordcricket at gmail.com. We need to know more. But I know that's the answer. 509 times uh, Rahul Dravid played for India. Thanks, Abhinash. Indeed. And we've got one more coming up. It's Tony King. The number's 147. Adam talked about Freddie Fane, an Irish dusty (laughs) old bastard who made a ton for England the first uh, to do it. Well, the only one for 100-odd years before Owen Morgan came along. Uh, Tony said a fabulous story. I was thinking closer to home, which is in Hampshire. As a kid, I went to my club's summer fate and spent my pocket money bowling at the county pro to try and win a prize, but never (laughs) succeeded. There's no need to scour county databases. It's a Hampshire player, but it's about his debut for England. But then this could just be a shaggy dog story. Uh, Yes. There was some emphasis on shaggy that would have got you there, Adam. Yes, it did. I went back and forth with Tony a couple of times. I just couldn't quite get to where he was going. But yes, Sean Shaggy Udal, uh, who the 147, I'm not entirely convinced about my answer, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through it anyway. It, look, his test is a great story. Uh, in the best of finer word traditions, he was an old spinner at 36 years of age in 2005. He got the call up in Pakistan. Uh, and then he went on uh, to play in India as well later in, in that winter. He only played in one test match at Mumbai and he was instrumental in England squaring that series one all taking four for 14 in the second dig so India was set 3-12 for victory and Tendulkar's going pretty well you know and then he has him caught uh, at short leg for 34 a lovely piece of bowling and then it all fell apart for India they were all out for 100 and yeah Sean Udall at age 36 takes four for 14 As it turns out, he doesn't play test matches again. But I guess what a great way to sign off. He was effectively overtaken by Monty Panisar as the second spinner to Ashley Giles, who in turn overtook Giles in the fullness of time. And and by that point, Udall was was quite old uh, as as a test cricketer. But you go back to 1994, and that's when he made his one-day debut against New Zealand and then South Africa at home. As we know, Jeff, he came to Australia in 1994-95. When I first became aware of him, it was that, that quad series between Australia, Australia A and Zimbabwe, a bit of a, a, bit of a pet topic of mine, as you know. Um, he was tidy without being effective as a one-day bowler in 94-95, and he got a few more games at home. And that's kind of it until um, 2005. Indeed, 
the gap between one day is he got one one day uh, against Pakistan that winter was 10.5 years, which is the gap for an England cricketer. No one's waited longer between uh, one cap and the next in, in the 50-over format of the game. Um, as it happened, it was another tight win for England. So his last test and his last one day were both in close triumphs uh, for his country. Um, and yeah, as I said before, that, that was kind of it for England. Um, his Hampshire career um, ended there roughly as well. So he played for Hampshire from 1989 until, until 2007. And then he retired. He said, look, I, you know, as you'd expect, that by that point, he must be 38. And he puts the cue in the rack. And he says, that, look, I'm going to play for Berkshire. I'm going to play minor counties cricket. Berkshire's not far from London, but that's that's going to be that. And Middlesex said, no, actually, why don't you come and play for us instead? So he played for Middlesex in 2008. And then Middlesex made him club captain at age 40 uh, in 2009. Uh, and that was enough to get him into the World T20 provisional squad for 2009. So he kept pushing on through to 2010, took his 800th first-class wicket. And then at age 41, he finally, finally retired properly uh, for the second time. In terms of the 147, he wasn't player number 147. That was Dougie Brown for England in, in one day as uh, there's no real 147 in relation to the test he played, other than the fact that uh, Inzamam Al Haq batted for 147 minutes on his test, uh, on his test recall, on his test debut. <laughs> so I, I think that what I'm going to go with is that Shaggy struck 147 boundaries in List A cricket across 390 matches, 11 of those coming when playing one day as for England. Uh, that's as good as I can get. And the reason I thought that might be it for Tony is that Tony remembers bowling to the county pro. And I suppose if you, if you assume that the majority of those 147 boundaries would have been uh, for Hampshire, where Tony was as a kid, it might just tie together. I like it. I'm very willing to accept and niche that as justification uh, for polishing off a number. A couple of confirmations. Uh, Tim O'Meara said uh, we were correct or largely gave us the answer <laughs> about it um, being related to Ian Callan's test figures. More to the point, Tim was following up to say that Adam was correct in guessing that Tim O'Meara was the brother of Andrew O'Meara, <laughs> who played um, D- was it DCA cricket? DCA, yeah, um, yeah he was a, he was a, a Parkmore player, or I think it was Parkmore or Southern Southern Pirates. I think they were called then. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Andrew and Tim are brothers, eleven years apart, and Tim says that Andrew is back coaching Kumara in the local comp for a second time. Oh, great! After he was resold for the job a few years ago. <laughs> For Mad Dog Callan, <laughs> who came in and got the gig ahead of Andrew O'Meara. Um, well, he's back, Andrew. Uh, it's, he's got the last laugh in the, the Mad Dog stoush. Um, Tim says, uh, a new pledge will be coming in shortly. Excellent, Tim. And Rosie Piper said, we got the 1234 that related to the number of runs that Tilan Samarawira made for Sri Lanka in tests in 2009. Rosie says, it's also worth noting that I happen to notice that just as Jeff said 1,234 runs, there were 12 minutes and 34 seconds left in the episode. Oh. That must have been the Halloween episode. Spooky. Oh, that is that is what a what a beautiful and apt way to to finish a, a, another fairly detailed story time. That, uh, that's the only the kind of thing that one of our patrons would pick up on. So, mm-hmm. um, thanks, Rosie, for being part of the fun, uh, for giving Jeff a couple of cracks at that, and for that 
brilliant bit of trivia at the end. 1,234 runs, 12 minutes 34 left in the episode. Beautiful areas from you. Jeff, that's it for us. It's been another story time, number 69. It's been nice. Thank you to Brick Lane for being fine supporters of what we do here, bricklanebrewing.com. See it in the show notes. Take some photos of yourself. With Rosie the did. Rosie, Rosie got did. The slab, yes, took Rosie some did. Photos, enjoying some uh, brews. I saw Andrew Donison, uh, one of our most beloved uh, friends, listening to some records last weekend with a Brick Lane brew. Uh, thanks, Dono, uh, for sending that through and for tagging uh, Brick Lane in as well. So when you're taking your photos, tag them in on social media, pick up some of the good stuff, and let them know that Adam and Jeff sent you from the final word. Thank you, Jeff, for your research on the show. Thank you, everybody who contributes to our Discord conversations, who's part of what we do patreon.com forward slash the final word i'm telling you when i go away from discord for a couple of days when i've got other stuff on and i return there the conversation is absolutely pumping so it's a bit old school in terms of you know it's it's, a, it's effectively a chat room and you know it, it's a it's a nice throwback to when the internet was a a nicer place before social media when you could kind of mm-hmm. control the conversations you were having with a select group of people pre-twitter i suppose this is what that feels mm-hmm. like. It's, it's, a, it's a safe place for all of your cricketing opinions. Uh, I mentioned before the live shows are going to be coming up in Australia, in Adelaide, Melbourne and in Sydney. We'll have more to say about that in the coming days. Uh, thank you to the team at Bad Producer Productions, to Jay, to Astrid and to DC, Dave Collins, our able and brilliant editor patient as well especially when it comes to story time which mustn't be a very easy show to edit uh, thanks for your patience and your brilliant work dc have i missed anyone jeff i think that's it i think we've thanked everybody who needs to be thanked um but you know i'll, I'll just i'll just thank anybody who wants to be thanked if you feel that you deserve gratitude i give it to you the universe we must we must send out gratitude and then we'll get it back this has been the final word. Story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Namaste. I, I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did well. And there's some stories I can tell you. Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. FinalWordCricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at BrickLaneBrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.